tonight this is a discussion and uh, and so while there are some uh, some questions some topics that we want to cover uh, for for both of you I got maybe some directed questions but then either can jump in at any time uh, you can phone a friend if you want uh, for, for an answer but uh, um, I, I do want to start with this question for you dr. Hodges and it pertains to um, for biblical counselors those who are engaged in doing biblical counseling, what type of medical information do you see as being important, as relevant for biblical counselors to be aware of as they're engaging uh, a counselee? And so I'll just kind of I'll start there. Um, it, even Is it important to be aware that there might be some medical issues? And if so... Well, I always like what Doc Smith used to say. He would tell us that the best source for medical information uh, about a counselee is the counselee. Mm. What you're really interested in when you are engaging with someone who is struggling with a disease probably isn't so much what they have as what they think they have. Mm. So you really want to know what they think they have. That requires you to listen. Uh, you gather the information from them. I, um, I always I remember in medical school they always told us that um, you were interested in what the cause, the course, the cure, and the conclusion was, and you know those four C's: the cause, the course, the cure, and the conclusion. And if you can get that from the counselee themselves, then that's a that's a real leg up. And then what you want to know from there is how they believe that is going to affect their life. You know, is it going to affect the way they work? Is it going to affect the way they um, uh, play? Is it going to affect their ability to raise children, their ability to occupy the role of a husband or a wife? Is it going to affect their Christian service? So those are all things that you want to know from, from them. Best source. I, uh, when I teach about this, I, I don't encourage people to send off for medical records unless unless they can read them. <laughs> you know, that's not a reflection on doctor's handwriting. It's, but anyway, the, um, um, if, you're, if you're a nurse, if you're a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner, a, a physician, then maybe a medical record might be useful to you. I can tell you I never send for them myself, but it might be useful to you. If you don't have a strong medical background, then the information that you might see in those records may or may not be very helpful to you. I, I think, you know, the, what we want to make certain of as we counsel uh, adults and or children uh, is whether or not they might have a medical problem that would um, impact their, their thinking, their behavior, their emotions. And, um, and so you want to have a good relationship with a physician in your community um, and or you would want to use the, the counselee's position, one or the other. And what I generally do for people who come in and who are depressed is, you know, if they haven't seen a doctor in the last year, if they haven't any lab work done in the last year, then, um, or close, yeah. then I am going to send them to their doctor with the intent of asking that physician to examine them carefully, take a good history, uh, do appropriate lab work and send them back to me and tell me whether or not there's anything medically wrong with them. I, I um, generally uh, encourage the counselee to tell the uh, physician 
that they're really not there to get medicine because I, you know, I've, I've practiced medicine now for 40 years and I can tell you if a person shows up in a doctor's office and says that they're anxious or, or that they're sad, either one, that you know, before they can get out the door, most people will write a script for them. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm not here to get a script. What I'm really here to find out is, am I sick? Mm. You know, is there something about me that's wrong? So I would say that those are the important things mm. to try to find out. And mm. it's important to, um, if, you, if you have a Christian position in, the, in your church, to maybe try to utilize him or her uh, or uh, in order to help you with, with that yeah. and to develop a good relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Building off of that, uh, uh, what are the potential dangers for a biblical counselor um, if, they, if they don't consider some of those things? If they, if they don't take into account a potential medical history or the things going on? And so I'll open that up to, to either of you. Um, are, are there potential dangers by by not asking those questions, by not making those referrals or getting some of that information? Well, um, I think as long as you inform the counselee in no uncertain terms when they come to, to counseling that you're not there to practice medicine, um, that you are there to do biblical counseling, that you are not a medical professional and you're not going to engage in changing or recommending or doing anything about their health care mm. uh, and that you seek to find the solutions to their problems inside of scripture uh, that you and you have that all printed up in a nice form and have them sign it <laughs> then you greatly reduce your risk of being um, sued mm. now if you do try to engage in metal and I would say metal mm. in medicine you know if you if you leave the high exalted position that you have as a biblical counselor to get down there and work in medicine, yeah. you, uh, you start running risk. Mm. You know, as soon as you start giving people medical advice and you haven't been to medical school, you are, you are incurring risk. I don't do that myself. Mm. I, I'm a licensed physician in the state of Indiana and in Pennsylvania and soon to be in Oregon, and I don't, when I do biblical counseling, I do not give people medical advice. Mm. You know, I, if I, now it's, it's really kind of a unique position to be in. I, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor. Somebody walks in and they starts talking about how they feel. You know, what does my brain do? Well, it shifts gears down to do what it does five days a week for the last 40 years. But I uh, attempt to restrain myself and, you know, make sure that those kind of pe people who have medical issues get back to their, back to their doctor. So I think as long as you make it very plain that you're doing biblical counseling and then that you do it, then you, uh, your risk is probably not very great, depending on what state and the laws of the state that you're in. Mm -hmm. I know in Indiana, it's, you're in pretty good position when you do that. Mm -hmm. Have either of you in your experience in biblical counseling um, gone down the road with somebody where um, you've been pointing into the scriptures, working with them, and somewhere down the road, what you discovered is that there was an underlying medical issue that you weren't aware of? that the person had that they were struggling with. Maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but as it pertains to their, to their diet or a, an actual disease that they have. Have either of you experienced that where you um, saw that uh, we, have a, we have a physical problem that needs to get dealt with here before we can begin addressing you know, where they're at even spiritually? Has that ever arisen? Well, you know, I, in, yeah, I mean, that's not an uncommon thing. Um, 
I think probably the most common one that I run into as a physician is with sleep deprivation. Mm. You know, I, uh, I could probably look out across this crowd and say, how many of you slept eight hours last night? <laughs> Raise your hands. Anybody out there? One, two, oh, a couple back up there. Good for you. Uh, you know, most Americans are sleeping six hours or under right now, and that is, by definition, sleep deprivation. Mm. And that will, I, you know, I think that's a reasonable thing to inquire about and would come to your attention. Mm. And um, if they can't resolve it by turning the television off and, and going to bed a little earlier, then you would want to move them on to mm. a, a doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, okay. yeah um, we've seen cases before where a doctor would later say, well, this person's thyroid level was off. Mm. And that would be a factor. Mm-hmm. I think sleep has also been huge, where people go nuts when they've been sleeping almost none. Mm-hmm. But a couple things I would add. One would be that these are influences, they're not determinative. Mm. And so, just like you'd want to know about a person's life history, something happened to them, they were abused as a child, that's relevant, but it doesn't turn them into something. Yeah. And somebody may have something going on physically or even with their brain that's mm. an influence. And you want to be aware if you can become aware. Sometimes you're trying to help people and you're getting nowhere and you might want to send them to a doctor because maybe there's something going on here I can't figure out some influence I'm not aware of Mm. Uh, I like I think it was Ed Welsh the first time I heard this said is that there may be a physical problem there's always a spiritual problem Mm. and so we can always address the spiritual problem a person who has dementia Alzheimer's other things that are brain issues still need spiritual help if they're capable of interacting with you Um, And so we always can address that. When you're trying to address the evident spiritual problems and you sense you're dead stuck, sometimes you'll wonder, could something be happening physically that's preventing this person from thinking clearly? Mm. For example, lack of sleep. Have a doctor investigate that. But I think the great majority of people who come to us for biblical counseling, and I'd be interested in Dr. Hodge's estimate on that, but I think the great majority who come the issues are primarily spiritual. Mm. We all have physical influences too, mm. but in terms of the physical being a major influence, I would think it would be a pretty small percentage of the cases that wander into a biblical counseling center as being this is really the big problem. Mm. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I'd say the vast majority of them will be people who have uh, spiritual and emotional struggles that um, uh, haven't responded to the kind of care they can get in the community. Yeah. You know, it's always a big issue about whether people take medicine or not. And I always smile and say, most of them already are when they get to my office. Mm -hmm. You know, very few counselees come to the office who are not taking medicine at the time. Mm -hmm. And generally, the reason why they're there is because, well, it really didn't work very well for them. Um, I want to turn and look at something that is often a very significant issue that people come um, to biblical counselors for, and it's depression or at least their understanding of it. I've heard both of you speak at different times on um, lingering sadness and loss and, and depression. And, uh, and so I want to ask a few questions just about that because as biblical counselors, we face that a lot and people trying to understand, they'll, they'll come and they'll say, you know, I'm depressed. And, uh, and so 
Let's talk about that for a minute, with maybe begin with a, a working definition, if you will, of depression, um, lingering sadness. Uh, how's a biblical counselor to distinguish these these things? And so, uh, help us help us under, understand uh, just that issue of depression to begin with. Well, I, I think today sadness, depression, has come to replace uh, sadness in our society. As uh, one author said, uh, nobody says they're sad anymore. We all say, I'm depressed. Um, the definition of depression is, is you know, pretty widely understood in the uh, Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders in its fifth revision. Um, and includes things like uh, inability to sleep, either eating too much or too little, lost interest in anything that you enjoyed before, um, a uh, sad mood, a, um, um, a sense of shame and guilt at times, uh, at times uh, fixation on wanting to harm yourself or wanting to die. Um, you know, all those things grouped together and I think you have to have five out of twelve or something okay. like that, and then um, and you have to do have it for two weeks. Um, that that is the the societal definition of depression, and I can tell you that in research that um, most of the people who make the diagnosis of depression don't bother using the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably less than half the people who are Diagnosing people with depression and writing prescriptions don't even use the criteria. Mm. And what's and beyond that, we know that uh, they're they're only right about 60% of the time, mm. which is a little bit better than flipping a coin, mm. but not much. Yeah. The um, so you know when I look at depression, I see people who have either what what I have read to be either normal sadness or disordered sadness. Mm. And a good book about it is the loss of sadness by. Uh, Jerome Wakefield and Alan Horowitz, The Loss of Sadness by Jerome Wakefield and Alan Horowitz. It's about a 350-page book. It's the kind of book you want to have a cup of coffee and a good night's sleep before you wade into. But it has lots of good research and very good observations. And these people are not um, in the biblical counseling movement. They're they're secular people. Um, What they say has happened in this country over the last 30 years is we've converted normal sadness into depressive disorder. And normal sadness is what happens when we lose things. Um, uh, you can lose a job, you can lose a child, you can, uh, you can uh, lose status at work, mm-hmm. you uh, can lose money, you can lose a house. Uh, any significant loss um, will result in, in anyone normally being sad. Mm. And that sadness will persist. It, the, the, the size of the sadness will be gauged by how big the loss is. Uh, it will last uh, generally until a person gets back what they lost, or they um, or they accommodate to it. One of those one of those three things. Yeah. Uh, Wakefield and Horowitz in their book say that sadness is a, a, an essential part of our being. Mm. That mm. they would say that it mm. was biologically designed, which means they're evolutionists. Yeah. You know, I believe that we were created with you know the ability to be sad. And you go read 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul talks about it. You know, he talks about how godly sorrow leads to repentance, but the sorrow of the world leads to death. So it's either normal sadness, where, where you can't identify with the counselee what it is they lost. And I can tell you that most of them can tell you. 90% of the people in one study could tell you what they lost. Mm. Um, 
it's, and that would be for normal sadness. Or you have another group smaller, maybe 10% of people who simply can't tell you why they're sad. And we have, for generations, called that disordered sadness. And in fact, prior to 1980, if you were going to make a diagnosis of depression, it was disordered sadness. If someone could tell me why they were sad, I would not give them a diagnosis of depression sure. when I graduated from medical school, which was a long time ago. And, um, but if they couldn't tell you why they were sad, those were the people who ended up with the label. Mm, mm, mm. So I don't know if I got to the end of your question no, or not. No, I mean, it's a, it's a multifaceted um, issue. I'd like to maybe take it from a uh, someone who comes in, let's talk about a disordered sadness, someone who's experienced loss, for instance. Um, that's, how, that's normal sadness. Normal sadness. Disorders, Some, no loss. No loss, okay. That's the most important differentiation that any counselor can make. You know, it's, it's can, can you find what they lost? If you can find what they lost and what they want to get back, yeah. then, then, then you're moving over into the idol of the heart world and, and where, you know, we, can, we have great scripture that makes great application to the problem. Yeah. So that's, well, that's the differentiation you want to make. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about that for a minute because uh, probably that's what a lot of people, they don't necessarily know that when they come in, but let's talk about counseling someone who is experiencing normal sadness. You know, they're, they've, they've lost something. Um, how, would you, how would you counsel them to not allow that to, to, to spiral, if you will? Um, what, would be, what would be the thing that, uh, that somebody should start with an individual like that in? Well, um, you need a new goal uh, in life. You know, people who have normal sadness, who have a, an identifiable loss, and who are pining away for it, uh, they, they need to develop a Second Corinthians 5-9 goal in life. Therefore, also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. It has to become how they, they, how they seek to live. As opposed to, I, 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 I want to get back what it is that I lost. That, mm -hmm. That's pretty much where it starts. Um, it starts with moving them toward Matthew 22, 37 through 39, where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and then love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tell them that they have to be willing to say, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe, which means more than I want whatever it was that I lost back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, I want, I want to love God more than I want to be skinny. I want to love God more than I want to be smart or rich or have my job. I want to love God. Mm. And, and then they have to love Him more than those things. Mm. And then it comes down to moving them to uh, Jesus in John 14, where He says, uh, you know, it's God who decides what it is that lo looks like loving Him. And, yeah. and He said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, He's the one who loves me. So we, we move to the fact that God has imperatives for us. Mm. And generally speaking, folks who are struggling with sadness, a lot of times along the way they have dropped off on you know, meeting those important imperatives, at mm. least in my experience in counseling. And you know, the gracious thing that we can do mm. is point them back to uh, mm. the things that they, they've dropped off of. I think it's also important for them to know that in the middle of the struggle as a believer, that they are not on their own. Mm. You know, it's Paul in Philippians too. It's God, you know, he's, first he says we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which should scare the daylights out of all of us. Mm. <laughs> that we, we have to work out our salvation. Yeah. 
And but then he turns it right around and says, but it's God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasures. So no believer who is ever in the middle of a, of, a, of a loss or a struggle should ever assume that he's alone. Mm. You know, in, in the same sense as Paul said in Romans 8, you know, we are never, ever going to be abandoned. Mm. So that's where it would start. It would sure. start by trying to move them away from whatever it is that they fix their hearts on getting back to to glorifying God. Yeah, yeah. I could, I think, I know that like Jay Adams, when he originally wrote his little pamphlet on depression, talked about spiraling out of depression as we obey the imperatives and do the right things, which I completely affirm. And for some people, just getting them out, moving, doing, mm-hmm. can be transformative. I also think, as you touched upon, the indicatives of who God is and what he has done for us mm-hmm. need to be emphasized. And I just turn to my Bible in Psalm 94. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. And, and on it goes that there is this hope in who God is and it's reflected beautifully in the Psalms and other places, is that he has compassion for us. He meets us in our sadness. Other real believers have mm. been here with us. You know, I love in Psalm 42 where he keeps coming back after his sad statements, Why? the recollection of who God is mm. and what he has done for us. And the other thing I would add, too, is that whatever you think you've lost, God is better than that which is so easy to lose sight of. It's like, I can't be happy unless I have this or that. And the positive put on side, it's that, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good in Isaiah 55. And Mm. that to really learn to understand who God is, what he is to us, and the fact that, not that there's a lack of compassion for the sadness, which we should reflect because he has compassion, but that he is enough to make up that loss. Totally. And so, the, like you were saying, for the, the person who's depressed with an unidentifiable cause, the Bible has powerful answers mm. to the lies this person has been telling himself, mm. that mm. God is not there, he can't live without this or that or whoever it is, and just reading the scriptures with them and pointing them to the Lord and, what, and who Christ is can be tremendously powerful yeah. and helpful yeah. Yeah. as the Spirit works. Absolutely. I love what both of you have said here and I hope is an encouragement to those that are listening tonight is that um, when we have experienced loss, when there is significant pain that someone has encountered, that there is hope in the midst of it and going to God's word, uh, he provides um, for us. And so I think that that's significant to be reminded, to reminded of, because in the moment it can seem very um, very real for an individual. Where else can somebody go and get this? And it's not yeah. just something he and I can do, it's something everybody here Amen. can do when yeah. you have people around you who are sad, to open the scriptures with them and read the word of God. It's not you, it's the Spirit speaking through his word yeah. to bring the only lasting comfort that people who have suffered loss can actually have. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think one of the, the best places you can take people who uh, sustained loss, and it's been a while, yeah, and usually it is by the time they get to see me. People, you know, I always say, you know, if somebody's lost a loved one yesterday, I mean, it's, it should be someplace like Psalm 4610. But, you know, usually it's been six months since whatever happened to them happened to them. And, and by the time they get 
to my office, they're usually looking for the door. They'd like to know how to find their way out. And I think a really good place to go is John 11. And if you want to want to understand how God looks at suffering in the life of of believers, go go look at Lazarus. And it's an easy, short, four-point sermon that I won't exegete. But he, 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 the first point is that Jesus knew. He knew that Lazarus was dying, and he sat down and didn't go anyway. Um, we know that he cared about Lazarus because when he gets there and he sees Martha and Mary and the crowd weeping, what does he do? He weeps. And, and that is, uh, that's strange when you think about it because what's he going to do in five minutes? He's, hmm. he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So, you know, why are you weeping? The reason why he wept was because he cared about the suffering that Lazarus had gone through and dying and the, and the struggles that Martha and Mary had had in the process. So we know that he know, knew, we know that he, he cared. We also know that he had a plan because hmm. he sat down and didn't go. You know, he delayed until Lazarus died. This was very purposeful. So we, we know that he knew, he had a plan, and he cared, and then he acted. And if you want to know how to help people who are struggling in life, that's, that's it. You need to know something about them. You need to have a plan to help them. You need to care about them, and then you need to do, uh, do for, for them. So John 11, great chapter to go to. Take people to show them that not, Jesus cared about Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and he cares about you and me. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's good. Yeah, write that down. <laughs> I'm preaching on John 11 in a few weeks, so this is great. So I just write that out. <laughs> the, the most remarkable sentence about suffering and illness in the Bible is in John 11. Mm-hmm. And it's when Jesus looks at the disciples and he says it's time to go to Jerusalem and they don't want to go. And he says, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. Just let that That's sink just a second. You know, Lazarus mm. is dead, and I am glad. Mm. It's glad for your sakes, because people were going to believe as yeah, a result. Felt. But, you know, it's like, that, that's an amazing statement. Yeah, yeah, powerful. Um, because the, the topic of even this weekend is the medical issues, I want to ask something that's a somewhat anecdotal, somewhat subjective, but I think it will help people as far as the issue of de- depression. Um, in, in your experience, when people have, have come and they've been struggling with depression, how many of those situations, how many of those cases uh, would you say, you know what, um, medical intervention was necessary? I know it's somewhat subjective, I know it's anecdotal, but, but just from experience, uh, for those that have they've come to you as a biblical counselor, um, what kind of a percentage would you say actually needed medical intervention? Well, you know, I, uh, I can remember one mm. in maybe a bunch of years, mm. and it was recently, mm. and the guy was manic, mm. and um, he needed health care. Um, it, it's actually uh, the other way around. We... I, you know, where I'm at, we rarely see people who haven't already run a gamut. Been on medication. I mean, you know, they, they have seen the doctor. They have been on one, two, or three different kinds of medication mm-hmm. and are perhaps on them at the, at the time they, they come. So I, I can't say that I, you know, from an anecdotal viewpoint, can yeah. give you a good number. Now, I can yeah. tell you empiric, I can tell you data-wise sure. what the numbers really are. Um, the... Um, I think this is out of the National Institute of Mental Health. The um, 
what, um, if you look at all people who uh, see a doctor for depression and who take medicine, um, this was in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2010, um, they, the, the, the studies that looked at whether or not the medicine was effective or not, okay. whether it actually did anything yeah. or not, showed that for 87% of the people who were taking the medication in this, these large number of studies, that they got no more benefit out of the medication than did had someone who took a placebo. Mm. That was mm. 87%. Now that's for mm. people who are um, mildly depressed, um, moderately depressed, and even severely depressed. Mm. It wasn't until you got to the last 12% which are very severely depressed, not severely depressed, very severely very depressed severe. people, that the medicine seemed to be able to move a Hamilton depression rating scale enough points, which was two, um, huh. in order to make it statistically significant. Hmm. You know, the, the difference in the medication is not great. And hmm. from the guy who ran the National Institute of Mental Health, the, he said that 80% of the people who um, get a label of depression um, 80% in the short run would do just as well as if they talked to uh, anyone who knew what they were talking about. You know, oh. if you just go talk to someone who had some skill in talking to people who were depressed, that they would do just as well as people who took medicine in mm -hmm. the short run. In the long run, they'll do better. And the reason why they do better was because they went and talked to somebody, maybe they figured out what in the world it was that was their problem in life, and they resolved it. Oh, now, that's sure. secular information. That is not, you know, this is not biblical counseling talking about it. So, so let me then build off that. Somebody's listening tonight, or somebody's going to listen to this later, um, and maybe they have been on uh, medication, and they're listening to their things. So, so is this really helping me or not? Should I just go off of it? So, oh, no. what, so, what, so what, would you, what would you say to somebody that... Yeah. Nothing, nothing. I always, you know, taking medication is a Romans 14 issue. Mm -hmm. it, um, Romans 14 is the um, old argument about um, between vegetarians and meat eaters. Imagine that. <laughs> Still exists. No, they were having an argument back then about it, and it was in a church. Imagine that, you know, an argument in a church. Um, Never. Never. The, um, and so... What Paul's response to the uh, question of whether or not it was right to eat meat offered to idols or whether you were more righteous if you just ate vegetables was a pox on both your houses. Um, you, you, they were judging each other, and Paul roundly uh, upbraids them for being judgmental towards one another and said it doesn't make any difference. If you, you're, you're no better if you eat vegetables. You're no better if you eat meat. And from that we generate the doctrine of Christian liberty, yeah. which means that if the Bible doesn't specifically say something about whatever choice it is that you are considering making, then you have the privilege, not the right, you have the privilege to make your own choice within the confines of all the rest of Scripture. Yeah. You know, Christian liberty is not license. Mm -hmm. It's not license to sin. You know, what you're going to do in the future has to be inside those those confines. And I would tell you that medicine isn't talked about much in scripture mm. and therefore becomes a Romans 14 issue. And um, as I teach people to do counseling, you know, one of the important things we tell them is that we, you know, I, I discourage anybody who's a biblical counselor from telling people to reduce doses or to stop medication. 
Um, I, I, you know, when you do that, you wander out into practicing medicine and put yourself at great risk, one. And two, most of these medicines have withdrawal effects, and if people yeah. stop yeah. them suddenly, they will have adverse withdrawal effects and think that, you know, that they have a medical illness that requires them to take the medicine for the rest of their lives when what they're really having is the same thing that happens if you quit drinking six cups of coffee a day. Mm. You know, significant withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. So, no, I, I, you know, nobody who's listening to this podcast should take anything that I've said to, one, think that they, I, we're encouraging them to stop their medicine that their physician has given them. Anybody that wants to, dis, you know, who believes that they want to change their medicine should go talk to the physician who prescribed it. I won't change medications for uh, uh, counselees who come in for counseling at, at our counseling center. I send them back to the doctor who, who prescribed it. Mm, yeah, that's good. That's, um, Dr. Neuheiser, somebody comes to you um, for counseling and uh, you become aware that uh, they are currently on medication. Um, you know, Dr. Hodges, you talked a little bit about that, but for, for you, for IBCD, um, how do you handle that? Do you even look to address that with them when, when they come in, or is that just a data point for you? It's a data point in our intake form. We have them list what medications they're taking. Mm -hmm. It could be other medications also have side effects. It could mm -hmm. be affecting them, and uh, those might be things you might send them back to their doctor about if you thought so. Sometimes you might ask, why are you taking that? What effect is it having? But I'm there to address the spiritual issues. Mm. Part of what is important for me is to know what I don't know. Mm. What I do know reasonably well is the Bible. Yeah. And I'm learning people and their spiritual problems. And so I don't thoroughly understand those things. I agree with Dr. Hodges that if they want to take that medication, that's their freedom. Yeah. Sometimes in discussion, they'll say, I hate the side effects. Do I need this? And so you need to talk to your doctor about that. Mm. That's your decision. Um, and so you'll have people say, I think maybe I should be on medication. And I might say, that is completely your freedom. And you can ask mm -hmm. your doctor for that. And I'm willing to counsel you if you decide to get on the meds. Sure. I would also tell you that there are enough spiritual issues here to work on that I'd be happy to work on those with you for a while before you try the meds. That's mm -hmm. up to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciated uh, something that you had said earlier that as somebody's coming to us, we're looking for ultimate, what is the spiritual issue here going, going on and uh, not to ultimately get distracted by some of, of those things or try to enter into areas as a biblical counselor that we might not be equipped to handle. And so pointing people back to their physician if they have questions about their side effects or those things, that's very clarifying and helpful. I have a question for Dr. Hodges. Yeah. So Somebody's on some of these meds, or do some of the meds have such significant side effects that would make it more difficult to counsel people because they're on that med? You know, is that, I don't know about your experience, but I haven't seen that very much. I, I, have, I, I, can, I can remember at least two people that it was for, you know, true for. One was a, a lady who was on enough medicine that whenever she sat down across from me in the counseling room, she immediately fell asleep. You know, I, that was a real impediment to, to counseling. So I, I wrote her a nice note and I handed it to her and said, go give that to your psychiatrist. And mm. I said, she can't stay awake. Could you, could you adjust things here a bit? Mm. And he did. You know, that, was, that was just it. And then I had a lady once who couldn't sit still because she was on amphetamines. Um, mm. who, her psychiatrist, as it said, she should not take. Mm. And I smiled and said, well, I think you really ought to be following what your psychiatrist 
told you to do. Mm. But other than that, I, I, most people, I, it really doesn't change things all that much. I've generally found that to be true, although occasionally when someone's coming in, especially, it seems like on a lot of different drugs or on what appear to be heavy doses, I almost wonder, what was this person like before this got into their system? You know, when I, I encounter this as a physician. I have patients who come in and they, they tell me they're depressed. And, and, and the drill that I go through with them, uh, which I think is, a, is, is an evidence-based medical mm. practice, is, all right, you are either mildly or moderately depressed. This has been going on for a good long time. Um, currently, the medical literature tells me that you can do one of two things. You can go talk to someone or you can take medicine. And I'll help you with either, but I really think you should consider talking to someone first mm. because actually mm. the medicines change people's personalities. You know, mm. there is really some great measure of question how well they work. You know, many studies show that maybe they work 25% of the time to get people to an actual remission. And that's really not very much. Yeah. But I can tell you from a, from a uh, physician's viewpoint, it changes the person's personality. And the question is, is, you know, do you really want to take this medicine that changes your personality or would you really like to go talk to someone? Mm. Now, how, what do you think most people choose? Yeah. Well, most of them choose medicine. Yeah. And I will write, and I do write them the prescription. I will. Mm. I, it, I, you know, I, mm. it's really funny. I have people say that they'll listen to me talk and they'll say that, he tells people they shouldn't take medicine and, and all that, and, he, and they should quit it and all this kind of stuff. And I and, I, and it just I'm amazed because I, I write prescriptions now. If I do write a prescription for that person, I will tell them I still want you to go talk to somebody, and then I'll lean on them to to, to go talk to a counselor of some sort. I mean, you yeah. know, in my secular setting, I had to be kind of tricky about how I do it, but. If I, if I can get them to say they want to talk to a pastoral counselor, then bang, we're off to the races. You know, I'll find somebody that can help them you know, yeah. in, in, in their counseling. Mm -hmm. And if they also tell me that they're poor and they can't afford it, I've got them. You know, because I, our counseling center doesn't charge anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so it's boom, they're right in the door. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot more that uh, we could discuss. Our time is, is coming to an end right now. And... Uh, um, but grateful, grateful for the insights and, and for the input for those that will be around this uh, weekend. Uh, tomorrow you'll be uh, sharing uh, more as part of the spring seminar. And so I uh, would hope that others would take advantage of listening to those recordings when, when they come out, uh, because there is much more to be said on the topic. But I want to thank you both so much for uh, giving of uh, your time and being willing to answer uh, some of these questions this evening. And uh, let's show just uh, our appreciation and thanks for them uh, tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you.